This episode is brought to you by Quant Wrestling. Quant takes the money ball approach to the sport of collegiate wrestling. They track and time every activity throughout a wrestling match and upload over 550 match stats to the Quant app to do things like predict match outcomes. I love this feature. You can use it in the Quant app, available now in the Google and Apple Play stores. That's Q-U-A-N-T. Use the discount code WCML to get your first month free. Now let's get to the episode. You know, Schultz and Bobby probably were in my corner for more international matches than any other coach. You know, Bobby and Schultz took me under their wing. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time, I spent wrestling. If it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Wrestling Changed My Life podcast. This is your host, Ryan Warner. Our guest today is Kevin Jackson, Olympic champ, two-time world champ, NCAA runner-up, one of the most sought-after international coaches around. He's now at the University of Michigan where he's an assistant coach. Go Blue. I love this conversation. KJ is one of my favorite people to talk to. I hope you guys enjoy this interview. Catch KJ at the Journeyman International Training Camp, April 12th through the 14th. Journeyman Wrestling is doing yet another awesome event in Albany, New York, and Coach KJ will be leading the International Training Camp. April 12th through the 14th, go to Journeyman Wrestling for all the deets. Fan of the Week goes to a recent Apple podcast review. This one's from Templar Wrestling, a junior high coach. He says, excellent show. I found myself using info from your show all the time to try and motivate my kids. Five-star review. Templar, thank you so much for listening to the show. I'm so happy that it resonates with you and the guys. Thanks for listening. And without further ado, folks, let's get to the interview with the great Kevin Jackson. Kevin Jackson, welcome to the podcast, sir. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, really last... like your work, man. Really like your work, like a lot of things that you've done. Um, really exciting times for you guys. And so um, pleasure to be on your show. Thank you so much. I know we spoke last when we were doing the Brandon Slay doc, and and now you're you're in the Big Ten at Michigan. How's it been for, so far for you? It's been good. It's been good. It's um you know, for the last couple of years, I felt like I was stealing money from USA Wrestling with COVID and only having Jaden and a couple other guys to train. It was, um, you know, it was tough, right? Not having the EAP program. So really being in a wrestling room every day with a group of guys, having the opportunity to work with them on the day-to-day has been refreshing. It's been good and um, it's been enjoyable. Yeah, and the just the buzz around Ann Arbor with, with you coming in, you got Jaden in, you got Sergey and you know, all the guys coming back. And I know you worked with Coach Torella before. Had you worked with Coach Bormet much in the past? I, I had, you know, me, me and Sean, I, you know, Sean um, hit the senior circuit at the tail end of my, my career. And so we had an opportunity to train together, even wrestle together. Um, and, um, but the most recent time we had together was uh, at the World Championship. I forget which year it was, but it was when we had four individual world champions. We had um, Will Lewin. We had um, Kurt McHenry, um, uh, Greg Kurtfleet, and, uh, and Aaron Brooks was on that team. And we ended up with four gold medalists, um, 
but we ended up taking second to Russia, but we had a great performance. And Sean was the volunteer coach on that team. And so we kind of reunited there. We had a chance to work together real closely. And, um, and really, we had a great performance. He ended up getting two of those guys off that Cadet World team. And so Sean and I have worked real well together for the last few years on the senior level. And then we did have the opportunity at the Cadet level to, to actually train the team together and take them to a championship. Yeah, he's uh, he's Illinois' favorite son. You know, I'm in Chicago and what he did with overtime made us all so proud. And, you know, that really put Illinois on the scene. And, you know, he's known as a, as a business guy, a details guy. Is that what you've seen since you've been there? For, for sure. And, and when you really even think about it, I mean, even overtime was ahead of, ahead of time. It's ahead of, ahead of, ahead of its game, it's ahead, of, ahead of time. And so um, just seeing what he did with the state of Illinois and how Illinois actually grew and got better. Um, at every level and perform that way at every single level as a credit to, you know, Sean and being ahead of the game and, and, and what overtime actually did to really kind of start that huge trend of, of clubs and, and um, uh, individual private coaches and, and kids training outside their high school program. So he's done a great job and he's always been that business minded, detail oriented um, coach athlete type of person, even when he wasn't a competitor, um, but just seeing it firsthand and seeing how many, how many hats he does have in the ring, how many things he's got his finger on and how many calls he's taken and texts he's returning and those type of things and to, and to be able to organize it and to um, detail it out the way he does. It's really been impressive to me. And it's one of the reasons that, uh, that I came to Ann Arbor. Yeah. Well, it's, it's so good to have you in the big 10 and just watching the Michigan squad develop this year. And, you know, you're at the, uh, you know, one of the largest wrestling rooms in the U S it made me think back to what was the wrestling room like at LSU, man, back in the 80s? Well, it was like old school wrestling room, right? We still had a big pole in the middle, you know, of, of our wrestling room. So if you really were planning on not putting forth the effort or having a bad practice, you'd hide behind the pole. Or you had a late night, you'd be behind the pole where coach couldn't see you. So it was still probably about a mat and a half. You know, it was, um, you know, it wasn't in a dungeon, but it was it was a really small utility room that, that LSU used. And we actually uh, had had some pretty good teams come out of that room, but yeah, it's nothing like some of the state-of-the-art uh, programs and facilities that we're seeing now. Well, I mean, one of the things I wanted to talk about was exactly that, because, you know, like, think about the SEC having a wrestling conference. I mean, that was that the thing back then? You guys had a standalone conference for the SEC? Well, see, I caught the tail end of that myself. You know, by the time I joined the SEC, it was, it was LSU and it was um Tennessee you know we were the last two teams left in the SEC obviously Chattanooga was right down the road but they weren't an SEC team but we did compete against those guys I think a couple years before that they had dropped the Kentucky program who was a well-established really strong really strong program it had Fletcher Carr was the first African-American coach um at any major university D1 and so he was a he was a coach there and they produced some really quality wrestlers and I heard Alabama actually had a strong squad with some of the Melkovich brothers attending that that university. So the SEC really was a good conference, but it was it was a good conference before I got there. Like I said, by the time I got there, it was us in Tennessee. And we always thought Tennessee would be the program that next next team to drop in the SEC is going to be Tennessee. We all felt that way. And then we dropped and we dropped before they dropped uh, going into my um, my senior year. And uh, and then they dropped the very next year so. Um, that was the last of the SEC teams. And realistically, LSU and uh, Tennessee could wrestle with any team in the country. We were that good as far as programs and dual meet teams and, you know, individual teams. I think going into the NCAA tournament, LSU was ranked number four in the country going into my senior, my junior year's um, NCAA tournament. So we were a really strong team. We didn't finish fourth. I got upset in the first round after being seated number one. Um, but we really were a strong team and we really were proud. Um, to be a part of the SEC and really disappointed that no programs are represented uh, in the SEC anymore, except yeah, in Missouri, I guess. Missouri. And, uh, you know, the fact that LSU went out of the way to put you in the Hall of Fame is awesome. And I mean, you're in the UWW Hall of Fame, of course, the National Hall of Fame. But LSU to put you in the Hall of Fame, was that surprising since they don't have wrestling? Well, the bottom line is, is I never knew how LSU really felt about me. You know, I knew how I felt about LSU. I joined them coming out of high school. That was my team. I was a tiger. Um, and, and I love Baton Rouge. I love LSU. But when they dropped the wrestling program, I never went back. I never went back to clean up my, my room. I never went back to collect any, any of my, my record player or, or anything that I had left on campus. I just was off and running to, um, you know, to the next university 
university and, and it was almost like being recruited out of high school again, except for the programs knew what my credentials were at the time. I had placed three times NCAA tournament. And so, um, so I had never gone back to LSU until my daughter actually got a scholarship to play at the University of New Orleans three years ago, um, volleyball. And so mm -hmm. I went down to take her and then I went and I visited the campus and I was like, first time back there in 30 years right and so I never knew how they really felt about me until I was inducted into their national or into their into the LSU Hall of Fame I'm the only wrestler um in LSU's Hall of Fame and so the, to, to be accepted like that by the university you know made me really realize that you know LSU did feel good about my contributions to the athletics department they did put me in their Hall of Fame and so it did reunite us again and, and, and showed me that I am a, a tiger for life. You know, I'm, a, I'm L LSU for life, you know, so, <laughs> um, so I got that, got that back and it was really exciting. Just the way they, like you said, I've been in quite a few hall of fames, um, but the way that they did it, the way they funded my parents, myself, my family, whether it was flights back, hotel rooms, you know, different things of that nature, they just really made it easy to come back and be embraced again um, by that university. So I really felt good about it. Don't feel good about them not having the wrestling program, but uh, but I feel good about how they how they accepted me back into the family and really showed me that you know they really did care about my contributions to the athletics department. It's a beautiful thing because there's such a sp sports powerhouse. I mean, I bet I've never been there, but their facilities for football must be stunning. And uh, I mean, much like Michigan's, I'm sure you know just off the chart. I mean, just 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 another other level. You know, I, you know, I hear LSU and Alabama. You know, they probably have you know, just as nice as facilities, if not nicer than some of the NFL teams, you know, it's just that plush, that nice. And they treat these guys really, really well. Now with this NLI deal, who knows what's going on Ooh. at all these universities, but at the same time, their facilities in general, just like Michigan there, it's, it's, it's supported at a very, very high level. They got major contributions, their football programs, putting in a hundred thousand fans every weekend, you know, brings in quite a bit of cash. And so it's, um, it's, it's a football dominated state to say the least. And when I was there as a wrestler, they cared more about the WWE wrestling as opposed to, you know, NCAA wrestling. So so that probably made it easier for them to probably drop the program. Yeah. And it was it, uh, you know, you grew up in Lansing, the home of magic. And you know, I love the magic bird rivalry and I love all the documentaries on. It. I mean, how big was magic growing up in in, in Lansing? Well, it, you know, we're, we're a basketball city. I mean, we we're a wrestling city, too. When I was growing up in junior high and high school, we had great programs, great wrestlers. We're producing All-Americans and guys that are contending for national championships at the Division One level. But growing up as a Pop Warner football player, I remember um, working out with our football team in, in St. Joe Park. That's on the west side. That's where Urban Ir Magic Johnson grew up. And so there'd always be a basketball park basketball court and there'd always be games going on at the same time that we were practicing and I would always see that one guy up there practicing or, or playing games but then when the game was over it'd be getting dark and he'd be the only one on the court running up and down this is when I was a kid he's he's a few years older than me but I was a kid and I'd watch this guy just run up and down the court you know playing by himself and then one one Saturday we weren't we didn't have a game. He came down and actually was throwing the ball to us. You know he's an older what? an older high school athlete, so he was throwing the ball to us as as when we were Pop Warner Pop Warner kids. So I remember that vividly because someone's like, "That's Magic Johnson. He's going to be really really good." That's Urban Magic Johnson, you know. And so uh, and so I remember him back then. That's my that's my vivid memory of him growing up. But then I went to Lansing Eastern High School, a powerhouse wrestling or powerhouse. Uh, basketball school as well. Jay Vincent, NBA, Sam Vincent, NBA. Uh, they played at my high school and Magic Magic Johnson played at Irv, at, at Lansing Everett. And so it was kind of robbery. So growing up, I also had a chance to go to Lansing Eastern uh, Fieldhouse and watch those guys play. And so, you know, so I grew up watch, watching Magic then seeing him go to Michigan State and do his thing there and then on to the NBA. So, so yeah. Yep. He's, uh, I mean, I, I just love everything about him and his story. And yeah, he actually you know, was going to go to the, whatever school was in his neighborhood. And then um, I guess, you know, the schools integrated and they moved him to Everett, which was yep. a predominantly white school. And so yep. um, just this whole story and his, his persona is so exciting. Yep. And you think about fast forward, 1992, you guys are in Barcelona together, right? Yeah, man. Yeah. We, um, and, and I had the opportunity to um, reintroduce myself to him, right. Tell him I'm from Lansing, that kind of stuff. But I got a great picture with him and Scottie Pippen, you know, at, at the opening ceremonies. We're on the we're on the um, Olympic floor. We're in the stadium. We're on the stadium floor um, at opening ceremonies. And Magic's coming through with the with the with the NBA basketball team. And they kind of came out 
separately because, you know, they would have just got, you know, overran by just fans, you know, even athletes or fans. But um, but I managed to grab him and Scotty, hug them up. They're about five feet taller than me. So I look like a little like a short person there. And um, and so I got a great picture with him that lives on to this day when actually when the um, um, uh, the show on ESPN was going on um, with uh, uh, with Jordan. Last dance. Uh, last dance was going on. I put that picture out in honor of the last dance because that team was um, was a dream team that came to, that came to 1992 uh, uh, Olympics. And so uh, so fond memories, definitely. And what I've heard you, uh, Kyle Klingman, you know, one of the best he was interviewing you and, you know, 92 wrestling was was one of our best teams. But I heard that it was a Charles Barkley elbow that got you guys all fired up and showing some love to the dream well, team. Well, we were upset, man. We were like, you know, they kept calling them the dream team. You know, the dream team's coming. It's the first time NBA basketball players are playing in the Olympic Games. So the dream team, it was all about the dream team, you know, and everybody was all excited and, and rightfully so. You know, the pros are pros are showing up, um, you know, Magic Johnson and, and Bird and Jordan are all coming to coming to Barcelona to play for a gold medal for the first time. And so definitely it was um, it was exciting. But we we were disappointed. We were like, you know, we're, we, we know we got to go to war. We got to scrap for this gold medal. We got to, we got to go to war to get a medal and, and even to compete, even to make our team, we had to freaking go to war and beat somebody out. That was really, really good. Even to make the team where they were kind of because of their status, they were given their positions. And then everyone in the world knows that they're not losing, they're not losing and they're going to crush guys. And so we were a little disappointed because like, man, I got to scrap for mine. I got to go to war for mine, but these guys they're over here on vacation. So they're playing Algona. I forget yeah. the name of the country. Um, Africa, I think it was Algona. Of, yeah. Yeah, out of, out of Africa, one of those teams, and um, and they're blowing them out by about twenty. But uh, one of the players kept um, being pretty physical with Charles, and I think he jumped over Charles and tried to grab a rebound. And Charles got the rebound, and he freaking threw an elbow and hard elbow that you'd see him, you know, throw in the NBA when it's a high pressure situation in in in, in game situation. So right then we were like, okay, Charles has come to war. Charles is coming to. You know, he's not taking it for granted. Charles is coming to compete at a high level. And so we embraced him as athletes in because we're like, he's here for the same reasons that we're, we are to go to war, to make it happen, to, you know, solidify, you know, our position in the world as far as being the best. And Charles is here to do that same thing. And he's not taking anything for granted. Whereas before that, we're just thinking, I oh, mean, these dudes, you know, they don't, they don't, they it's just, it's just fun for him. You know, it's not like we look at the Olympic gold medal. We put it on a different pedestal than any other championship medal. And I didn't believe that our professional athletes do that. I don't think they do it in tennis. I don't think they do it in NBA basketball. I don't think they do it in golf. And there's some other sports that are included now in the in the Olympic Games where I don't think winning a gold medal is the highest level of achievement for them like it is for us. And so we're a little disappointed with that. But watching Charles give that dude the elbow, we're like, okay, all right. At least Charles came to fight, you know. He's and, ready. Uh, and, we yeah. and, then, and then Charles came to the Olympic Village. He was in the Olympic Village pretty much every night. I don't know if he was trying to find a date or if he was trying just to socialize or have a couple, I don't know what he was doing, but every night he was always there socializing in the training room. And so he really connected, I think, to the, to the other athletes from not only the United States, but other countries. And you didn't see the other NBA athletes in the village. Um, MJ, too much no show. MJ was ne Michael Jordan was never in the, Michael Jordan pretty much stuck to doing his thing and going to play ball. Cause at that time he was at the height of his, you know, celebrity status and, and he would have just been mobbed. Right. And uh, so I understood because I don't even think he came to the opening ceremonies. He didn't come out with the team to the opening ceremonies again in fear of just being mobbed and overran. Yeah. Well, it's it's crazy that your journey to that team, you know, you backtrack to even 85 where you said number one seed, you lost to a division three wrestler, came back to place. That was a big turning point. But, you know, 87, you're part of the most epic NCAA championships of all time. Iowa State, Jim Gibbons, they run the Hawk, they end the Hawk streak. Jim Kelly pins Brad Penrith. You're battling Royce. You do not, you get second that year. And you said at that point, you were like considering maybe not even going on. And is that true? Yeah, man, it was, it was devastating, you know, and, and, and that's what hopefully athletes understand that when you put so much work, time and effort and energy into trying to obtain something, um, and it really means something to you when you don't get it, it's devastating, you know? And so for me, it was, it was heartbreaking. My, my goal was to, you know, at every level to be a champion, whether it's city, high, junior high, city champion, high school, state, nationals, you know, college, it was to be the NCAA champion. 
And um, and I had been seeded number one before my junior year, and I got beat got beat first round, and then Royce beats me out. Um, you know, my my senior year, so it was devastating. And so I tell people this all the time: is that wrestling can promise you two things and two things only: heartache and pain. It can promise you those two things: heartache and pain, and you're gonna feel those, and you're gonna deal with those. But they're also gonna turn you into the person that that you end up being because you can persevere through anything if you can persevere through some of the hard losses. And so that. So I was hurt so much. It, it devastated me so bad and, and crushed my dreams of being an NCAA champion that much. that I was like, I can't take this pain anymore. I can't, I can't take this kind of pain anymore. But I soon realized, and I started gaining a little weight, so I needed to start training again. Um, I soon realized that there were bigger and better goals, world championship, Olympic games. It was Royce, Al- Royce Algers out there that would also be on the circuit. I had a chance to avenge uh, those losses as well. So I kind of gathered myself up and kind of, kind of, you know, reestablish that I want to be a world champion. I want to be Olympic champion. And then I pursued, pursued, um, pursued um, doing that as hard as I could. What was it about watching Bannock and Kevin Darkus work out that got you, that, that spoke to you that one day? Well, Eddie Bannock was really a great coach. You know, Eddie Bannock, I, you know, I give Jim Gibbons a lot of credit because Jim was a young coach, but he was a smart guy. He had been around champions before with Nate Carr and and Harold Nichols and Les Anderson. And, you know, he had been around the tradition of Iowa State for years. And so he, he knew what it took to really um, be your best or a team to really be its best. But he his, his ego was at a level where he was open to getting an Iowa Hawkeye guy in there like Ed Bannock and allowing him to share with us kind of his mentality, his thought process, his training methods, you know, some tactics some techniques and really fueling the team really as that energizer type of guy to motivate and to get us directed in the way we wanted to be directed to, to go for this national championship. And so, um, so watching Ed not only put our team through um, that couple of years of training, because I got there in 86 and I redshirted, then I wrestled. So I had two years under that in that system um, before I competed in the nationals. But then watching them work individually with, with Kevin Darkus. And in that year, Kevin Darkus actually won the nationals and then he got beat in the trials. Mm. um to not make the team but he won the national tournament so just watching him just put it put kevin through and just really really cover the must-dos of wrestling really really hit his areas of concentration and and just kind of spend that quality time and to see kevin dark is kind of just really embrace it you know and just accept the coaching the training the physical work and everything about it just kind of made me think man if, if i had a dude that just um you know individually trained me like that and uh, and i kept focused and i worked as hard as i could and I think I can, I think I could attain, um, you know, some of the goals that I might've missed out on, you know, in college. And so just seeing that do that and knowing who Ed was, um, and then Jim Givens, then Jim Givens being open to funding myself, Stuart Carter, a couple other guys to get on the circuit, even though we had no real credentials, right? We had no real, you know, things to tell him that, oh yeah, Kevin Jackson's going to go on to, to make a world team or make an Olympic team. Jim didn't know that at the time. At that time, I'm just second in the country as a, as a senior, right? So nothing saying three years later, I'll be a world champion. But uh, I, I, I thank Jim because he, um, he supported me. He funded, he funded me in a way where I could stay on the, in the program, survive, train, and end up getting better, go on tours, and, uh, and compete internationally to allow myself to improve to get to where I needed to get to to win. And that, in that time, the U.S. was so deep. You had Royce get second in 89 um melvin won it and or was on the team in 90 he got second and of course he would win it in canada and then you break on the scene in 90 was it 91 your first team 91 yep yep oh man and then go to yep. bulgaria you get the w there and then heading into 92 i mean how deep are those trials in 92 well here's the deal is um you know i came from an era where you had to beat the man that beat the man that was a man to be the man right you had you had to beat the very and that guy was probably one of the best guys in the world and so, you know, having Kenny and having having Dave and having Campbell and having Melvin and having Royce, you know, them guys were all world level performers. And so just training with those guys, I knew I was getting the best training possible. But I also knew that if I could make it out of the country, because I saw the focus that went on. I saw the focus that went towards the number one um, wrestler, the number one ranked wrestler would get a lot of attention throughout training camps, getting him more ready, ready. And I could feel that if I got that kind of attention. I could get to the levels that I wanted to get to. But I also knew that the year Royce, uh, the year Melvin took second, 
he should have won. He was winning the match with seconds left, got a takedown, didn't know that the point was re- awarded, and he ended up getting reversed to mm-hmm. lose that match because um, just because he didn't know what the score was. So Melvin should have won in 1990, had the match won in 1989. Sorry, 1989. In 90, Royce had that match won, had had jo- Joseph Lahoya beaten that beaten the finals. I had to wrestle Joseph the next year in the finals, but Royce had him beat, I think, by one or two points with maybe 30 seconds left. And Lohenia gets on Royce and he leg laces him and turns him twice to beat him in the match, right? Turns him wow. twice. So Royce really had that match won. And so both those guys watching, I'm a pretty detailed oriented guy when it comes to scouting and it comes to being a student of the sport. I knew that they both should have been world champions. And so I said to myself, if I can beat those guys and also Rico Ceparelli was in our weight class. Mike Bernarza was in our weight class. Dave Schultz came up to our weight class, you know, so we had quality, quality guys up and down the lineup. So I always felt like if I can make it out of the country, I'm going to be the world champion because I got to beat guys that are the best in the world. And I probably got to beat a couple of them to make the team, but that's going to prepare me for what I have to do once I, once I left the country. I always believed that it was tougher to get out of the country than to win world and Olympic gold medals. Wow. That is, and that just speaks to how deep we were. So what was your path at the trials in, in 92 in, in uh, Philly? So 91 was really uh, uh, the trials that really set me up for 92 because I placed in the world. I won the world in 91. And so that put me on top of the ladder. And every now and then you'll hear Royce Elgers allude to, oh, he had an unfair advantage. You know, it should have been me there. He shouldn't have made the team. So, you know, that's a whole nother story in itself, right? That's a, that's a whole nother show, you know, mine and Royce Elgers rivalry. Right. But, um, but in 1991, I made the team and I won. And if you made the team in 1991, based on previous year's performance, what, what the United States didn't want to have, they didn't want to have a bunch of guys make the Olympic team that had never been there before, that didn't have the credentials or have the experience or have the, the results, right, that, mm-hmm. that previous world champion. So they set up a system, whereas if you made a world team the year before, that year, year before, you, um, you got to sit on top of the ladder for 92. So you got to sit there, didn't have to go to nationals or the trials and everybody had to wrestle to you and wrestle you two out of three. And so um, so I just had to wrestle Royce Algiers two out of three to make the Olympic team. And when Royce beat Melvin Douglas off uh, at the final trials to get to me, I was like, thank goodness, because Melvin was my, Melvin was my biggest fear. Like Melvin was going to be the guy that was going to be my toughest match. And so when I got Royce instead of Melvin, I was like, Thank goodness, because Melvin had great defense. He had great offense. He was a seasoned veteran. He had athletic ability. And he could, I mean, he was just gonna, it was gonna be a it was gonna be a monster match for me to get past Melvin two out of three. I believe I could have done it, but never having done it before. I did beat Melvin in 1991 to make the team, but I only had to beat him in the nationals and then one match in the trials. Um, that was a match I was thinking I was gonna have to win. So when Royce made it to the finals, I'm like, okay. I got Royce. I know exactly what I'm facing here. Deal with the hand fight. Get your points when you need to get them. Deal with the hand fight. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so um, so that's what the trials look like for me. And it comes full circle because 87, you know, Royce, you beat you in the finals. And that's kind of like one of your big turning points. Like if we did the yeah. Kevin Jackson doc, 87 would be a crucial point in that journey. And uh, so would 92. Well, in, yeah, in 87, it was, you know, it was it was ridiculous because I, I go to Iowa State because I'm going to a place that I believe can beat Iowa. Like when I left LSU, my only, my only goal was I watched, I, I would, I would beat the Iowa kid. I had, I had Kistler. I had Marty Kistler. I think Marty Kistler or Lindley Kistler. And I beat both of them. Right. When I was at LSU, when I was at LSU, I beat both those guys in matches. Um, but Iowa was just running through the NCAA tournament year after year after year. They'd get a bunch of champs. They dominate guys. They, and I'd always say, how can one team just dominate the country? How can, how come, how come guys are playing down to them? How come they're just not, nobody was competing against them. And I felt like it was just, they were just out toughing people for the most part. They did have guys that were talented skills, whatever. But at that time I was just disappointed that Iowa kept winning and winning and winning. They were up to their ninth, ninth title. I transferred, they were up to their eighth title. When I transferred, they had won their ninth title while I was at Iowa State. And we had a chance to, to beat them then too if our team would have came together. You know, we had some guys that didn't perform at that level. But when I left LSU, I just looked at Oklahoma State and Iowa State because I felt like those two teams had a chance to challenge Iowa for the national champion. They, they had the talent, they had the mm-hmm. personnel, and they had the belief to actually challenge for the title. So I had the opportunity to go to Iowa State. And fortunately for us as a team, we ended up beating them. And uh, stopping that streak of 10 
and, uh, and crowning four national champions, five finalists, and setting a new points record uh, during that during that wow. that tournament. So um, so yeah, it was a uh, it was uh, a great experience and a great time to be a part of the Iowa State team. But I'm like, I got I joined the team that that beat Iowa, but I lose to a Hawkeye. Imagine that. Seriously. So it was so it was kind of it was kind of it was it was bittersweet to say the least because I've been on some world teams and I definitely would much rather be the world champion than um to be second and have the team win. That's right. kind of, that's kind of a wrestler's mentality, you know, take care of yourself, the team will take care of take care of itself, but you take care of yourself and everybody else takes care of themselves. The team the team takes care of itself that way kind of kind of deal. So so yeah, crazy crazy times. Before we go back to Barcelona, I just want to ask, what was the environment like when Iowa and Iowa State got together for dual meets in that 87 season? It was, it was, it was crazy. You know, we beat, I think we went, I think it went back and forth. I think maybe, I can't remember if, I know we won the one in, the, in Ames. I can't remember if we won the one in Iowa City. I don't think we did, but that's when we would go um, home, home and home. Mm-hmm. And uh, those were the days, you know, those were when the rivalry was at, it, at, its, at its height. And I know it's getting back there now. Um, but when at home and home, I think there's a couple of challenges there that is just different than the norm. Oklahoma and Oklahoma states are doing, they're doing the same thing, but just that Iowa state rivalry just made the whole state stand on end and stand up and, and look at, look for wrestling and, and, and wait for those matches and having two of them at each one, each one's home just made it even, even, even more special. But the rivalry was always strong, man. It was always intense. It was always, you know, a war and there was always some back and forth with the coaching staffs, you know, going back and forth just a little bit. Not, not to the degree it is at now. I don't know if I'm in favor of, of where it's at right now as far as coach athlete, you know, hitting heads, that kind of stuff. I don't agree with any of that. But I do think that intensity and that energy is, is surrounding those programs again. But back in the day, it was it was um, it could go either way. You know, we we lost some duels that, you know, Eric Volker was winning. One time we were, we think it was Brooke Simpsons and Eric, Eric was a defending NCAA champion and all he had to do was win. And we win that duel in Iowa city, he gets caught and pinned. So crazy stuff would oh, always yeah. happen. Forgot about that. That was yeah, crazy, crazy stuff. And I think that was 86 when that happened. Okay. Um, so crazy stuff would always happen like that between Iowa and Iowa state. You know, you could never, you could never quite call it, you know, what bill bill, when we beat Iowa um, that year at same year too, I think they beat us at home and then we beat them at home. That's when Bill, Bill, um, um, Bill Tate, my best friend, Bill Tate beat Rice Algiers, uh, majored him um, in that match. And so that's another thing that you probably, you probably didn't see coming, but that's in Perry Summit, they actually got a fall, you know, mm. in the first match at 125. And so, uh, and so that match is crazy. Um, it's great to see that it's back to where it needs to get to as far as energy and intensity um, is concerned. But obviously Iowa State's got to, you know, got to break through there to, to make it, make it that real rivalry again. Yeah, I didn't help with that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, man, those were fun. Those are, you know, that 80s, that that rivalry is so fun because I even think back to uh, who was it? Uh, was Jimmy Zaleski who tech fall the great car and, uh, and he bumped yeah, up. Yeah, remember and- that Nate Carr went up to 158 from 150. And um, and I think they just had a little bit better tactical plan for Nate. You know, Nate would stand up real quick and, and, and Jimmy just was prepared to Matt return him and, and risk tilt him. And yeah. um, so it was a big time match for. For Jimmy, I know Nate ended up getting some getting some uh, uh, revenge and freestyle those type of things, but huge match match, and you'll still hear you know Hawkeye fans when you bring up Nate Carr's name. I'll tell you a match I seen Nate Carr wrestle. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you you still hear some Hawkeye yeah. Hawkeyes uh, still throw that up at you when Nate Carr's name comes up. Well, and you've been a part of so many great rivalries. The other one I think about is USA versus Iran, and uh, you know '92 you have the young up and comer. Kadeem or Hadim in the, I don't know if it was the quarters or the semis, but I watched it this morning, a really tight match. And had you scrapped with him before that one? Well, I had wrestled him in the first round, uh, second round, I think, of the world championships in 1991. Okay. And I knew he was a young kid, but I could feel him. I could feel the skill set, right? I could feel the skill set, which, which worked for me because my counter offense was really good. And he was a he was more or less a, a diver. He dived to a shop, then he could work his way to a finish. But he had other skills too. When you actually look at his career, his total career, uh, pretty good career, right? Pretty good career as far as championships won, 
Um, at that time in 1991, he didn't place, but that very next year at the Olympic Games, he placed third in the very, very tough, tough weight class at the Olympic Games. But then he went on to, I think he moved up and then he came back down. And I think he found his, found his weight at, uh, I think, 90 kilos. He ended up finding his weight and beating the great Kadarta, becoming an Olympic champion, those type of things. But I had wrestled him um, in 90, or, I'm sorry, in 91 uh, in the second round. But then in that semifinal where I wrestled him, um, that was one of my, that was, that was a good match because he really was out to win, right? He was really out to, to win the match. But at a certain point in the match, I could just feel him trying to hold onto that one point lead, which you could do then, right? You could, you could get away if you're not cautioned out of the match. You could, five minute straight period, you could actually get a takedown and, and let him fall into your counter offense or defend, 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 and, and maybe win some of those matches. But it was a point in that match where I really felt him like, try to hold on to the win and that kind of turned up the pace a little bit on him. And that's when I caught him with some clean things and he ran back into my counter offense once I got the lead on him. Yeah. And looking at, uh, you know, the, the camera panned over to, to coach Bobby Douglas and he's going crazy. He got me so fired up just to know that he was in your corner. I didn't realize that. And then Schultz was as well. You know, Schultz and Bobby probably were in my corner for more international matches than any other coach, you know, Bobby and Schultz took me under their wing and in, in 1991, um, you know, I was out at Foxcatcher, so I had Schultz as one of my training partners anyway. Um, but then when Schultz didn't make those teams, it was like he was player coach already. And um, and so he had, you know, Dave was sharing more technical skills, tactical skills than any other coach at the time, even though he was still in, an athlete. You know, we would, we, would, we would go to Dave for, for answers, you know. And so Dave was that guy. And so Dave actually locked down my parterre defense, you know, prior to the World Championships in 91. He was on top of me. He got on top of me. And wrestle me every single day to make sure that my partner defense was on point. So Dave was in my corner. Then he was in my corner when I made the Olympic team against Roy Soldiers. He was he was my main main coach then. Um, but having Dave and Bobby both was the 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 best mix because Bobby is you know Bobby is intense. You know Bobby is this guy right here. You know hey, go, get, go get that double, go get that double, Jackson. And Dave's this guy. Hey, keep it down, relax, keep it down, relax. And so it was a great combination for me. Because towards the end of that match, I heard Bobby screaming something, but I was looking at Dave because Dave could keep me, you know, grounded and, and locked in. I think and the end of that match with the Iranian, it was Dave that told me to put the pump fake on him, you know, to, to slow him down because he was kind of bringing the pressure, trying to look for his scores. But you put the pump fake on him, they have to respect the shot and make it a wrestling match again. So, you know, who, what better coaches in your corner? Dave Schultz, Bobby Douglas. What, I mean, wow. I mean, I, I, the, the, the best of all time, right? Who, couldn't get any better coaches than that. And I've, and I've had, you know, I've had the Gables, right? I've had, you know, Joe Slees and, and Bruce Brunettes and, and all them guys are really good. Excellent coaches, professionals, right? Up and down the line. Um, Bobby and Schultz are the best. Um, Bruce Burnett is, is right there, you know, with those guys. Um, but obviously, uh, great support system uh, yeah. having those guys in my corner. Bobby Douglas, definitely on the Mount Rushmore, either as a wrestler, but definitely as a coach. I mean, you know what he did at the Mexico City Olympics. I know he was he had a little bit of the flu bug and he was battling, but, you know, he put the wood on Gable many times. Uh, and then when Bobby retired, you know, Gable came through. But, um, yeah, just to see those guys in your corner was awesome. And then, you know, 2004, you and Bobby are in Kale's corner. So, again, it's oh, like that's awesome. No, that 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 was that was one of the best times of my life right there. Not, you know, of my coaching life, obviously. Um, but seeing what Kale went through to get to that point of, of having the opportunity to uh, be Olympic champion and then seeing him, you know, seeing him on one end, right. Because to make the team was a challenge, right. It was a mental, physical draining challenge for him to make that Olympic team. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't fun, but then to see him on the other side of it, being on the team and seeing how refreshed that made him physically, mentally, and then to lock in on, on what the, what the mission was, um, was, was great to see. And then to see him execute, right? Because there were some areas of concentration that he had, that he had to improve in, in order to beat the best guys. I mean, wasn't like he walked off the mat, like people thought and just walked into a, a gold medal at the world championships or the Olympic games. He got beaten in 2003 by, by the Russian. And, and I think the Russian, you know, beat him probably twice because they actually took a call away from him. So he had some really tough guys. So he had to make some technical adjustments and tactical adjustments, but to see him go through all of that um, and have the, have the challenges that were surrounding him, but then it culminate into what we believed he was capable of a gold medal. Um, and to share that moment with Bobby after Bobby being in my corner, 
um, all those years was just um, it was it was really um, satisfying, right? It was really satisfying as a coach, and then uh, to see a guy accomplish a great goal and winning that gold medal and seeing what the price he paid was just really rewarding. Um, and there's a great picture of me and Bobby standing there after care one. And, and I, and I didn't even remember, but we got the biggest smiles on our face, um, because you know, this guy, this guy got it done and we know everything he went through to get it done. So when you say everything he went through, was it that he was just carrying like more stress than any American wrestler ever because of the undefeated college and all that stuff? Well, I can't say who's carrying more stress than anybody ever. Right. I mean, all of right. us carry, carry stress, but obviously he was feeling that, right. He was feeling that, that stress of, the weight of expectations, right? And um and 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 knowing that it wasn't gonna be easy, right? It wasn't gonna be easy to make the Olympic team. I think he lost to Lee Fourhard a couple of times, right? And at in the, the period open. of the time. You know, yeah. he lost to him at the open and he lost one match at the trials, right? And so um and then he would and then you know me and you know I worked with Kale quite a bit, you know, from a you know a national teams coach from a national teams position. You know, he would come out and train with us and every now and then he'd catch an attitude because I'd be training with Lee too. And he'd think I'm training Lee to beat him or that, <laughs> that kind of stuff, you know, but I think he found out real soon that I'm training everybody to beat everybody in that way. You know, that, that way you can keep it fair as opposed to one way or, 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 or the other. And I think he, he grasped that, um, connected to that. I think we really, really connected when we went to the Pan Ams one year and he wrestled Romero and they cheated him out of the match and he seen how emotional and, and upset I got about him not or, or them not rewarding him the match and I think that bonded him tightened him to our coach after relationship where he he was more open to listen and be coached and be trained and and those type of things so I think it was a process to get us to where we needed to get to from a coach athlete relationship but as far as the Olympics in that year um it's a whole it's a it's a it's a whole individual thing that we it, it, you know I mean you deal with pressures and stresses and everything else that comes along with your job and your life and sometimes it becomes right. overwhelming and I think that's kind of what he went through it was a little bit overwhelming and uh, so who knows where those pressures and stressors or everything built up on him were coming from but I know and I know that there was a point where it wasn't fun training wasn't fun competing wasn't fun and we had to kind of get him back to that point where he could see it, feel it, understand it, recognize the prize is coming. It's, it's coming. We just got to get through this point and then, um, and then we're going to get there. So, so to see him win and to see how, what he went through to win and to see how once we got through the trials, how he became a little bit of a different guy um, mentally. Um, that was, that was, that was exciting to see. Well, the reason I bring it up is I've heard you say that during your NCA career, you did not, deal with stress the way you would have liked to and that you I've even read that you had said man if I win this match I'm retiring whereas in freestyle you were a totally different guy and uh, you know we're nearing the end of college season where all of these NCAA athletes are carrying <clears throat> a lot on their shoulders what was it between your NCAA career and your international career that allowed you to deal with stress and pressure a little bit differently well, well for, for whatever reason um in college, you put a little bit of undue stress on yourself. For whatever reason it is, you just kind of feel that that pressure. I don't know what it is, just kind of hovering over you, you know, and you have to have different mechanisms. You have to have different different ways to deal with that, whether it's not whether it's just to sit back and, and not watch, you know, your competition or watch any other matches before you walk out there, whether it's to continue to tell yourself to stay calm to be relaxed and to conserve energy and to not get too high or not get too low. Um, it's just a whole different animal that the NCAA and college wrestling and dual meets presents. And I haven't quite been able to put my finger on why, why that is, but every single person for the most part feels that a little bit. Now, if I'm on a team like, you know, just an all-star team, I feel it might not be as hardcore because I know that I'm with 10 guys that are going to go out there and book. They see seven or eight of them going to win. I'm going to go out there and do my job and no big deal. But if there's an expectation for the team to win and one of the wins is, 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 is you having to win that match, sometimes kids carry that, carry that on. They don't put in their perspective, right? It's, it's really about the opportunity. It's about your attitude. It's about being grateful having, for having this opportunity. Those are ways you can, you can, you can alleviate those, those pressures or those stresses um, that come along with just feeling that pressure. But for whatever reason, it's there. I felt it. Internationally, freestyle, 
you know, I mean, you, you wrestled before. Anytime you went from folk style to freestyle, it always, you always felt freer. You always it was felt, fun. It was fun. Everything was fun. Greco freestyle. It was just fun, right? You go to junior nationals, even though the competition tougher, it was fun. It was just more relaxed, more free. I related to, you know, my, my daughter plays volleyball and she plays hardcore. She plays in the gym. She also plays beach. When she goes to the beach, it's just relaxed, fun, play the game, no stress, no whatever, just compete. You know what I mean? And it's the same thing for freestyle wrestling for the most part. And I think that carries over even now to this day that when guys get out of folk style wrestling, they go to freestyle, they feel it, it's freestyle. It's free, I guess. But um, but for whatever reason, I think it's more about that team and the expectations. And then you put that expectations on you from your parents, your friends. You got kids think like this. I got to win or I, I got to win. I got to win for my coach. I got to win for my mom. I got to win for my dad, my sister, my brother, my university, my team. No, you don't. You got to win for yourself. You got to compete for yourself. Everything else just comes along with that. But that's hard to manage when you don't have that the right, when you don't have that thought process in the right perspective, right? And then you are, it's hard enough to win for yourself. It's hard to win a wrestling match, period. Mm -hmm. But it's even harder when you're trying to win for more than just yourself. You know what I mean? And so, and, and so I think me understanding that or me going through that process, I think kids going through that process that get a chance to wrestle freestyle, that's why you see a little bit more freedom and happy. And you, don't, you, you just don't feel those other pieces as much um, as stressors as you do from a folk style standpoint. Yeah, we're trading singlets. We're swapping shirts. It's uh, <laughs> it's, it's the whole thing, you know. <laughs> but um, if you look back at your career, you know, on the, all the big time competitions you wrestled in, was there any routines that you did the night before or the morning of, whether it's like, you know, some self-talk, some visualization, some breathing that you did that really got you in the right place? Yeah. Yeah. I investigated all of it. I, I investigated all of it, but you know, you know, when I really realized though, that when wrestling is just about fun, right? It's about fun. It's about, it's about competing. It's about going to war. It's about the battle, but in the essence of it, it's still gotta be fun, right? It's still gotta be enjoyable something you love doing and 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 really i caught myself because i really looked up to i went my first big time tour was 1990 right i went on tour to uregan it was the first time they ever had uregan but we had the uregan tournament and then we would go to tbilisi which was at that time the toughest tournament in the world so we went back to back events and all along the way we'd wrestle in dual meets in these little villages then go wrestle in the uregan and then we go to a couple more villages and then end up in tbilisi for our final tour before going home and so i I went over there and that's when the war broke out. Um, that's when the Middle East war bro broke out. And, um, and so a lot of athletes didn't go. It was just myself, Schultz, uh, Campbell, um, uh, Zeke Jones, um, uh, Royce Algers ended up catching that trip, uh, came late to the plane, didn't know that the trip had been canceled and jumped up because the USA wrestling cut the trip. They, they stopped the trip. They didn't want us to go because the war had just broke out. And so um, um, Bruce Burnett, or not Bruce Burnett, yeah, Bruce Burnett was there. He said, I can't go because USA Wrestling is not, not letting me go. But I'm not telling you guys what you could go, what you could do. Yeah. So Gene Davis took us on that tour over there. But I roomed the whole time with Chris Campbell. And all I did was ask questions. When do you shoot? When do you attack? He said, um, when I see an opening. How about if you don't see an opening? Well, then I don't attack. I'm like, oh, I can do that. <laughs> this guy, you know, but I would just keep milking him for information. Like in him and Schultz, I milk those guys for information all the time. And so I wrestled my first round match against this Russian that I never could beat. He ended up, he ended up beating me, but one of the moves he beat me with, he came up with a two on one. He came to my uh, lat and he freaking threw me back this way for five. First time I ever got hit by five. So two on one, takes two on one off, drags to it, goes to a drag, other arm comes to the armpit. And he freaking squats me and he throws me back this way for five, right? It was nasty, right? Never got thrown for five. So he ends up beating me like six to three, six to two. And so I come back in the locker room and I'm like, like cursing and stomping my feet and acting all pissed off. And I look over at Dave and Chris and they're like this. <laughs> you know, they just start laughing. You know? They start laughing because they saw me get thrown. And right then it clicked to me. It's like, it's still a game. It's still fun. It's still wrestling. It ain't life or death. Right. You know what I mean? And so yeah, yeah. I could, I could, I could throw it off, and I could joke. You know what I mean? I could, I, I re, I re gathered myself. You know, I, I understood where they were coming from. You know, because they wanted to win as much as anybody, and they're freaking out there. Them two dudes will choke you to beat you. They will 
knock, I've seen both of them not put people unconscious. I've seen Dave choke a guy, knock him out, turn him over, pin him, and then act like he wants to help him up, act like he's a friend <laughs> for him now. You know, I'm like, Dave, you just choked the guy out. You just you just put him unconscious. I watched you choke him, and you meant to choke him out. Campbell but was the same way? Campbell, Campbell would choke you out, too. Back in those days, if you took a shot on Campbell, Mark Schultz, Dave Schultz, if you took a shot and you and it wasn't clean, like you got to him and got through the position, they would get you in the front headlock and you had two decisions. Just lay, just lay there and give them the takedown or get choked unconscious or get choked unconscious and still give them the takedown. And so you better make sure that every shot was calculated, every shot was was a good shot. But they, yeah, they they had no qualms with, you know, putting the putting the, the squeeze on you. And even even the even UWW at one point, um, you know, they outlaw their, their, their front headlocks. When they would get to a front headlock, they would make the referee stop that match because that's how effective they were. We're getting to a choke and turning you, choking you out, scoring, scoring from there. So yeah, they were, they were, wow. they were, they were more vicious, man. They were, they were more, more like, oh, if I got to hurt you to beat you, I, 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 I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. They were more like that, you know, that, that kind of, that kind of mentality. Dave, Mark, Campbell, you know, they, if I got to hurt you to beat you, it's part of it, you know? And, but like the cool thing is that off the mat, they're not taking themselves so seriously that they can't no. laugh. No, no. They, and, and that, and that was a cool part about it too, is that, um, you know, anytime you're around Dave, Dave always made you feel like you were the most important guy in the room. It was never about Dave. It was never, ever about Dave when really, you know, Dave was like the, you know, the, the you know, he's, he's the Mecca, the guy you go to the get answers. Right. And everybody would migrate to him. Um, but yeah, but they always were about the fun part. And that's one thing I was disappointed about the Foxcatcher movie, the movie, not the documentary, is that I could see Dave um, in Ruffalo. I could see Dave in him, but they never showed Dave's true joy, Dave's true spirit. Dave's true joy and spirit was he loved wrestling. He loved to laugh. He loved the joke. He was never, he never was serious ever, except maybe with that, with Mark being over 14, I could see him getting serious about that. But in the movie, it never showed Dave's lighter side, which was, the majority of the time that's who Dave was is the lighter side. When it was time to wrestle, yeah, he became a killer. You know, he became, he became, you know, he, you know, he got intense, you know, got the look on his face. But, um, but for the majority, most part, Dave was lighthearted, laughing, joking, fun to be around, loved to laugh, loved to joke, that, that kind of stuff. And so that's what attracted me and kept me in the sport and kept me doing it for as long as I did is because the camaraderie, the fun, you know, the, the freedom, all of those things. And the one thing that we, you never hear about now, and, you know, I don't know why it is, but what kind of a savage was Mark Schultz? I mean, he's kind oh of like. Oh, my goodness. Dude, I, I'm, hey, we got lucky when that dude retired. When he retired, like, he was still young enough to wrestle. Like, he's younger than Dave. So when he got out of the game in 80, he, get, he, got, out, he got out of the, the game in 80. I jumped on the circuit. 80 or 88? I thought it was 88. Yeah, eight, my bad. 88, my bad, my bad. 88, he got out of the game, right? I got on the circuit, 88, 89, 90, 91. He was still young enough to wrestle. And I had trained with Dave when I was in college. He almost killed me. I'm like, I trained with Mark. And when I was in college, LSU, Brian, or, or Gary Keck got us to go out to um, Sunkiss Kids and, and train with him when we were still in college. I got a chance to go train with Mark and Dave and other world team members. And I started wrestling around with Mark. And he put me in a front headlock. And he just freaking popped me and took me. And I had never felt that before, but he almost killed me. I was just a young, young high school kid or college kid. And he was a, you know, probably world champion at the time. But when he retired in 88, he opened the door for myself for really, I think it was Melvin came in next to 89. Melvin got silver. Royce ended up getting silver in 90. And then I came around in 91. But if he would have kept wrestling, who knows if, if we'd have made world teams during that three year period, you know, before 1992, he was that, he was that good. And so I thank God that he retired when yeah. he retired, because it would have been a challenge. I think it was Melvin who was telling me how like, you know, Schultz is Dave Schultz, obviously an icon, a legend, but like, dude, Mark was like that, but like, but like the body of a, a gladiator, you know, like and, a killer. And, and, he, and straight athlete. I mean, had all the technical skills was explosive, had all the skills that Dave had for the most part, but was a straight athlete. And, mm. um, and that's a whole different animal because he, he's, he's an 80, he's a, he's an 82 kilo guy, right? 82 kilo guy. And, um, and he could wrestle with, with, with Bruce Baumgartner. Like he could take Ooh. Bruce down and, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm a power wrestler myself and I can, 
I didn't like wrestling with Mark Coleman. I didn't like wrestling with Bruce just because they're big power guys and I'm a power wrestler. And, uh, but Mark could wrestle with, 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 a, with, a, with a Bruce Baumgartner and hold his own. You know what I'm saying? Now, Bruce might dispute that. I mean, I hope, I'm, yeah. hope Bruce don't give me a call after he sees this. But, um, but yeah, yeah, Bruce, Bruce um, Mark could wrestle with Bruce and Mark could wrestle with bigger guys than he was and, um, and do really, really well against him because so athletic, so big, so strong. So flexible, you know. Used to be a gymnast, and, um, and yeah, I uh, I'm, I was glad that he uh, he actually retired before I, just, before I hit the circuit. So was it Cher who beat him out in '88 with Bill Cher? Because I'm like, well, how did he not make it in '88 if he won the worlds in '87? He, you're talking Dave. I'm Dave, talking Dave. Mark. Dave. Mark. Mark. Mark was at the '88 Olympics. Oh, he, he got was. beat. Okay. Yeah, he got. He got. He, he had the Turk. And he ended up hurting the Turk, right? I mean, that ended up being a big international incident almost, you know. Um, but Dave didn't make the team. Dave didn't make the team. But in 88, okay. Mark was on that team. Mark was on that team. Got and, it, got uh, didn't, it. And, didn't, and didn't place. Right? Got 88? It. Is that right? Yeah. 88? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, right. yeah. yeah, 84 was L.A. They both won it. 88. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then just the last thing I, I got to ask you about before we hop off here. I have another interview starting. Otherwise, we'd, we'd go for three hours, KJ, is <laughs> – I don't know if you say, is it the Takti Cup, the Tahiti Cup? What's the deal Takti, in Iran? Takti, Takti Cup, Takti Cup. Let's, yep. go, let's go deep into the barrels of this one because, man, you guys were the first U.S. athletes since the revolution of 79 to go to Iran. What do you remember from that event? I remember that we were excited to go because we knew the history of Iran wrestling and fans. So we were excited about going, and we also knew how they felt about American champions, right? And so we're taking myself, Zeke. Melvin, you know, some really good guys that they, that they, we had wrestled against. So we knew that the fans and the athletes would be excited about us coming there. But we also knew that we were the first Americans to go there since the overthrow of the embassy. And so we didn't really know. And then what scared us was USA wrestling sent us a letter. Um, so we almost signed our life away. So we're not holding anybody responsible if something, if some, if we get blown up or we get shot or we get whatever that we're not going to hold the, the, uh, 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 USA wrestling uh, accountable for anything that happens to us. It's not, and so that was scary, right? And so we remember that even going there, and then getting there. Um, we get there, and, and we get off the plane, and we're going to the going to our bus, and then outside, it's like one a.m. in the morning, and there's like thousands of people just waiting to see us get on the bus. So we really felt like we felt like the dream team then, you yeah. know, going from the airport to the bus because fans everywhere, they're on the bus, beating on the bus, waving. You know, just just that celebrity status, and that's where they run around wrestling. I see. I tell anybody that really wrestlers, you have not you have not seen wrestling until you go to you know those Dagestan, Hatskalat, those regions, and then Iran. Really, it's really the, the the top of the chart. You know where they really put wrestling on the pedestal and and treat you like you want to be treated as a champion and respect you for for ev- for everything you you do. And so you know that was a different trip. I mean, we got to our hotel and there's. Uh, armed guards on every, every floor, machine, machine guns sitting at the elevator. You know, we're driving the bus going to the arena or going to work out. There's cars on, on both sides and they got AKs and automatic weapons. And, and I'm thinking, well, somebody's got a lo- rocket launcher. It, it ain't gonna matter, right? right. Um, but I really, I really felt good about being in Iran because I knew that wrestling's their national sport. For them to, for them to, for them to um, have something negative happen to a wrestler first and foremost, in Iran would be a slap in the face to, to the to the whole country because they love wrestling like that. And so I felt safe. I felt safe. But when we're in the arena in the national anthem, our national anthem gets played for the first time. You know, we're we're there at the the march for the march of countries, and we're standing there on the mat. And you look at our faces because there's a picture from there. You can look at me, Joe C, uh, Melvin, Zeke, um, uh, uh, Sean Charles, and we're scared. I mean, we're, we don't know what's going to happen. We're nervous about that whole situation, but it ended up being the best experience, one of the best experiences of my life. I ended up winning the Takti, Takti Cup um, that year. Um, and, and the crowd just, you know, they, they fell in love with American wrestlers. They fell in love with Melvin because he lost the match, but handled the match like a champion. He, they kind of cheated him. And the Iranians knew. They knew that Melvin got cheated. And after the match, he would say, you know, we know you got cheated. You're, you're the champion. And so, and then Melvin carried a picture of the Ayatollah out, out on the mat and he became a, 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 a legend um, once he did that. And so, um, so, the, so it's one of the best experiences I've had as, as a wrestler 
I think as any any senior level wrestler or any wrestler in general, you gotta you gotta wrestle around and be at a wrestling event in Iran before you can call your career a career. If you haven't seen that live, then you're missing something that all wrestlers should see. I bet it was deafening in there when Melvin was carrying the picture of the Ayatollah around. Um, but, uh, and he came out second. So there was, it was the Ayatollah that was currently in office, but then there was the one that had passed. And I can't remember if Melvin was carrying the one that had passed or the new one. And, um, and Melvin came out second. So first, uh, Jadidi came out with the, with the picture, right? And Melvin didn't know what he was doing. He was just doing something that Jadidi asked him to do. And, um, but once he did it, he became an instant legend, you know, he came, a, he, you know, came a, a big time celebrity where everybody would ask about Melvin Douglas, you know, because he because he did that wow. you know, it's East West type of thing. But it's uh, it was a great experience. It was it was it was fun. I'm glad I had the opportunity to, to be there and do that. It's awesome. And, and KJ, it's always such an honor to chat with you. I, I love the energy and I'm, I'm a huge Michigan fan. So I'm rooting for you guys this weekend at the Big Tens and just wish you nothing but the best, man. Go blue. Thank you, man. Really appreciate you. Like I said, I really enjoy what you do. Keep doing what you're doing. It's um, it's great for the sport. Great for the sport. So keep doing what you're doing. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. This episode is brought to you by Quant Wrestling. Quant takes the money ball approach to the sport of collegiate wrestling. They track and time every activity throughout a wrestling match and upload over 550 match stats to the Quant app to do things like predict match outcomes. I love this feature. You can use it in the Quant app, available now in the Google and Apple Play stores. That's Q-U-A-N-T. Use the discount code WCML to get your first month free. Now let's get to the episode.